Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses, we're going to be reading verses 12 through 17 today, 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. By the way, I want to encourage you to come back tonight. You know, it might be raining and stormy, but uh, we're going to be looking uh, again at Psalm 2. Uh, I preached a message a while back, it's been about five or six months ago, uh, from Psalm 2, and it was called A Psalm for the Times. Uh, tonight we're going to look a little more closely at one section of that psalm. We are working uh, through several psalms in the evening worship service. This is the, the first of the Messianic psalms, so we'll kind of introduce it. What are the Messianic psalms? Why do we have them in our Bibles? And so forth. And then we're going to look at, at uh, God's decree uh, to, that he has set his king upon Zion. Uh, and uh, we'll look in depth from the scriptures on that. I want to encourage you to come back uh, for a time of worship this evening. It's always good to open and close the Lord's Day with worship. But let's read 1 Timothy chapter 1, 12-17 for this morning's message. The Apostle Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted in ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Here we end the reading of God's Word. As we work our way through First Timothy in morning worship, we've been looking at several passages uh, still in the first chapter, and I remind you that we're doing this not only because Paul writing to Timothy gives us a lot of insight in how we should be living in the church, and he says that to Timothy, I'm writing you these things. If I can't come visit you, I'm writing this letter to you so that you may know how you should behave in the household of God, in the church, in the household of God. Uh, so we are learning how uh, a minister should conduct himself in the household of God, but that and also it has implications for all the members of the church. It's not like he has one standard of behavior and we all can do our own thing over here. Well, I, I can't do that because I'm kind of in that other side. But the fact is, we learn about church life. We learn about the life of the church by reading these pastoral epistles and studying them. Also, uh, we get a little insight, too, in what we should be looking for in, in the new pastor who is coming someday, at some time. Uh, what kind of a person should he be? What kind of a, a man should he be? 
And today I want to I want to actually lead with that. That's usually I save that for the for the uh, uh, the application at the end, right? But today I want to lead with that because what the Apostle Paul says here about the reason why God chose him to be an apostle, a, a preacher of the gospel, it is very much a part of his own personal story. It's very much a part of his own life. He does not look at the gospel. The Apostle Paul does not look at the gospel as a, a recitation of facts about Jesus, who he was, and what he came to do that really have never come into his own heart. Paul knew the gospel. He knew the power of the gospel because he considered himself the worst of sinners. And this gospel, this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, reached down to Paul and pulled him out of his depravity, out of his sin, out of his way of life, and brought him to salvation. It was personal, and that's what I'm saying. The next preacher who stands in this pulpit and proclaims God's word to you, the gospel must be personal to him. Not just that he knows the facts of the gospel, but that it has reached into his heart and has changed him at his very core being. That is a man who will bring the fire to the pulpit. You can teach techniques. You can teach the rules of exegesis. You can teach the languages. You can tell a man how to construct a sermon but you cannot teach the fire. The fire comes as God, by his Spirit, opens his eyes, changes his heart, and gives him true understanding and a true sense of his debt to God for salvation. It is what will motivate him. It, will, it is what will drive him forward. It is what will bring him great joy and blessing in the ministry and great joy and blessing to the congregation. And I might add, growth as well. We need preachers who have that fire for the gospel message because it has indeed touched their hearts first. Well, as we look at the passage that we've read, we're going to break it into three parts, three questions that we're going to ask, and they're all based on finding the reason for why God did something. What is the reason? Paul gives the reason for why God has done these things. First, the first question, why did Jesus come into the world? Second, why did God save a great sinner like Paul? And third, what is the ultimate purpose of everything that God does? So we're going to, why did Jesus come into the world? How did that relate to Paul? Why was the reason that God brought Paul, Paul the Pharisee, Paul the Saul of Tarsus, who describes himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees? He was like the most extreme Pharisee ever. Why did God save this man? Why did God bring him to salvation? And finally, the kind of the big question, why does God do everything, anything? What is the ultimate purpose for everything that God does? Well, okay, why did Jesus come into the world? Verse 15 of our passage says this, This saying is trustworthy, 
and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Well, there's your answer. Why did Jesus come into the world? Paul says, to save sinners. Well, what does that mean? Let's break that down. By the way, he, uh, then, then he makes it personal, doesn't he? Of whom I am the foremost. First of all, Paul introduces this statement as a trustworthy saying. This is the first of five trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles. Paul, writing to both Timothy and to Titus, kind of highlights, it's, it's kind of a way of putting a, a spotlight on a specific statement that Paul has written to these young men and, and communicating. This is a trustworthy saying. This is something you need to believe with all your heart and, and accept, and it needs to be foundational for the life of your ministry and the life of your congregation. These are foundational truths that you cannot ignore, that you must incorporate, not just into your teaching, but into the ministry itself. These are life-changing, life-forming truths. This trustworthy saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. How did God then we're going to ask another question. How did God, through Jesus, his Son, save sinners? I'm going to focus on a particular word this morning. That word is the word propitiation. Now, how many of you could give me a definition of, of what that word means, propitiation? Okay, but Tim Tim is courageous over here. Tim, what, what does propitiation mean? Oh, see, he's going to... Oh. A substitution. A substitution. That's that's a good part of it. Yes, that's a part of it. Uh, I saw another hand. What? To, to appease the, the wrath of God. To appease the wrath of God, that's right. And, of course, we can't do that ourselves, so we need a substitute to do it for us, doesn't it? Don't we? Um, our, our call to worship this morning actually had uh, that, that um, word propitiation in it. I'm sorry, not our call to worship, but uh, our, our assurance our assurance of pardon had that word propitiation in it. And that, where is that? Of course, when you have all these papers up here, you can never find the one that you're looking for. Well, anyway, John used that word propitiation in John chapter 2 in our, uh, in our um, assurance of forgiveness. Uh, we find that word in other passages, too. Let me read another passage to you where we find the word propitiation. Romans chapter 3, 23 through 25, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. Now, 
you can actually see in that in the the context of that word that's often how we get a, a deeper meaning and understanding of of a specific word by looking at, at how it's used in the context how the context around that word gives us uh, a, a bigger uh, greater understanding god put forward jesus christ as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith there's a, a parallel thought. Paul in 1 Timothy says God sent Jesus, uh, Christ Jesus into the world. Here in Romans, he said God put forward his son, Jesus Christ, to be a propitiation. And here we have this idea of satisfaction, of an appeasement. We are recognizing in this word propitiation that someone is angry with us. Someone, we are, we are not in fellowship, in harmony with someone. And who is that someone? It is God himself. We have sinned. We acknowledge this when we, when we come to understand the gospel. We come to understand that we have sinned and that that sin has driven a wedge between God and me. And the Bible also tells us this, that the wages of sin is what? Death. The Bible also says the, the soul that sins shall surely die. The law teaches in the Old Testament as, as the, the law was unfolded for the day-to-day -day, uh, system of justice in Israel that there was a penalty of death for certain crimes, certain sins carried that death penalty. Wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us that those who, who die without the faith in Jesus Christ, who die in their sins, not in faith, not in redemption, not in Christ, but die in their sins, can look forward to eternal death, a death, an eternity, separated from God under his judgment and wrath and consigned to the eternal punishment of hell. There are very few churches, by the way, that still mention hell. And eternal punishment. Someone must pay for that sin. And God himself put forward his own son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice that atones for our sin, that appeases, placates, satisfies divine justice. The soul that sins shall die, but I will provide a substitute for you who will die in your place. Now, I have to tell you, the world mocks that concept. It's become fashionable in the world to say that this is the ultimate form of child abuse, a father putting his son out there to be killed. It is the ultimate child abuse, but for those who know salvation, it is the ultimate act of love for us sinners. We have no hope without the propitiation of Jesus Christ. First John chapter 4, 9 through 10 says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. If it's, it's not child abuse, it's love. It's love for sinners. It's a redeeming love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. 
In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, the satisfaction, the appeasement, the substitutionary offering, atonement for our sins. By the way, it's interesting because I always like to start with a definition. What when I'm we deal with a, a theological term, what's the definition? So when I was preparing this, I, I went to Webster's dictionary. Here, good old Webster will have the definition. You know, Noah Webster, who wrote the original Webster's dictionary, was a was a Christian, was a believer. And he often used biblical and religious theological examples to give the definitions of his words, of the words. In the modern Webster's Dictionary, well, let's just say their definition of propitiation is bloodless. It just says, to appease someone who's angry with you to calm them down. Well, actually, it says that. I said, well, what good is Webster's anymore? Let's go to the Bible. Get a definition from Scripture. So, yes, this is how Webster starts, to calm someone who is angry with you. That's what propitiation means. Well, no. That's, that's a very weak definition. It is to satisfy the demand of justice, to atone for sin, a sacrifice that atones for our sins through the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. The justice of the Father is satisfied, and his anger is turned away from us. That's propitiation. And that's the reason Jesus came into the world. Brothers and sisters, have you believed in Jesus Christ as your substitute, so that you yourself and your own person do not face the wrath of God, but rather he looks at you and he sees the innocence and purity of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his wrath is turned aside and he smiles at you as his child, brought back into his family. Why did God send Jesus into the world to be a propitiation for our sins? Why did God save a great sinner like the, like Saul of Tarsus, Paul, who says, Jesus was sent in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I am the foremost. And, and in that statement, as I said before, he makes it personal. This is not a theological principle alone. It is certainly a theological principle, but it has been personally applied to the Apostle Paul or to Saul of Tarsus, who now is known as the Apostle Paul. I was the foremost of sinners. Now, he lays that out for us, going back to our passage in 1 Timothy 1. He lays that out for us. Why does he call himself the foremost of sinners? It is because of the way of life that he led, the way of life that, that, was, uh, that was his before the Lord 
came to him and literally knocked him off his horse on the way to Damascus. What was he, what was he going to do in Damascus? Well, Saul of Tarsus had received letters of, from the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem to go and conduct it in a way uh, his, his own little examination of these reputed Christians or followers of Jesus in Damascus. He was going to conduct his own inquisition in Damascus. And he had authority from the Sanhedrin to take these Christians, to put them in prison. He had done this before. He had uh, breathed out threatenings against believers for several years already. And he says, I was a persecutor. I was a blasphemer. I was I was one in another place, he says, I even had Christians arrested and put to death. You know, the amazing thing about Saul of Tarsus is he thought he was doing God's will. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought it was a work of righteousness that showed what a a zealous Pharisee he was to persecute these heretics these believers in Jesus. And then Jesus stopped him on that road to Damascus, literally knocked him off his horse, and said to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting my church? Is that what he said? No. He said, Why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus identifies with his church. You touch the church, you are touching the bride of Christ. You touch the church, you are touching the body of Christ. For Jesus, persecution is personal. Something that those persecutors today should be reminded of. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul has no answer. Saul's life has been exposed now by these simple words of Jesus as a lie, as built on a lie. It was the lie of his own self-righteousness. It was a lie that he, being a Pharisee, could prove what a righteous man he was by his actions. Going way beyond, he says, the people of his his own day in his extreme application of the principles of Phariseeism, even going to the point of arresting and killing and torturing God's people. And it was exposed by that, that question of Jesus, why are you persecuting me as a fraud, as a lie, as blasphemy in and of itself? Why did Jesus intervene on that road to Damascus? Jesus had a radically different plan for Paul's life, for Saul's life. And by the way, if there ever is an illustration of the sovereignty of divine grace, it is the story of Saul of Tarsus becoming the Apostle Paul. 
And Paul himself says that God had ordained him before he was born to this this place as the Apostle Paul, as an apostle to the Gentiles. But Paul says this, going back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, in verse 16 he says this, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. There's a bigger purpose here than just Paul himself. Jesus chose Paul and intervened on that road to Damascus and saved Paul and then called him into the ministry of the preaching of the word so that Paul might be, there were other reasons as well, but this is what Paul focuses on in this passage, so that Paul himself might be an example of the patience of God. Have you ever wondered, have you ever thought to yourself, how can God love me? I'm such a mess. I am such a total loser. Failure. How can God love me? Why is he so patient with me? And Paul would say, well, look at my story. (laughs) I was killing you people a few years ago. And God demonstrated his his wondrous patience. He didn't judge me. He didn't consign me to death. He saved me. And if Paul could say the Lord was patient with me, the Lord saved me in spite of all that I had done, in spite of all my self-righteousness, which I now realize are nothing but filthy rags. If God was patient with me, he is patient with you as well. God was not patient with Paul because Paul was a good guy. He was patient with, with Paul because he had a purpose for Paul. He has a purpose for you. For one thing, God would, in the life of the Apostle Paul, demonstrate the glory of his grace. And that is also, when he saves us, what he is doing. He is demonstrating the glory of his grace. You know, if we, if we could honestly take an inventory of our own hearts, we might say with Paul, okay, Paul, you, you are the most prominent sinner. You are the worst sinner, but I'm not far behind. And if God was patient with you, he's patient with me because he has determined to show me and you grace, mercy, through Jesus Christ. And that brings us, well, Paul actually had, or God had another purpose, an additional purpose. That is, he was going to be an apostle to a very specific group of people, not to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. I often, I've had thought of this, and it's just kind of the way I think sometimes God has a sense of humor. 
what better person to give to, to make an apostle to the Gentiles than a Pharisee of the Pharisees? A person who his whole life has been dedicated to separating himself from Gentiles because they're unclean. The, Pharisees, the word Pharisee means the pure ones, the ones who seek purity, the ones who are separate, the ones who are holy. And God picks the, the worst or the, the most extreme example of this pharisaical mindset and says, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, the very people you look at as inferior and unclean and hateful, and you want nothing to do with them, Saul, and I'm going to make you my apostle, my messenger to the Gentiles, so that you can proclaim the unsearchable riches that I have as God's Son and your Savior, and you can proclaim that to the Gentiles. And I, I kind of thought to myself, God has a sense of humor, doesn't But then I thought better. I said, that's the wisdom of God. What better man to take the scriptures of the Old Testament, the scriptures that were there, what, that they had, and to lay them out for the Gentiles and instruct them about the true and living God and bring them the light of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the light of the knowledge of the true and living God. What better person has been equipped by his knowledge of Scripture, and now having a revolution in his understanding of Scripture, that now he looks at Scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ. What better person? It is truly is the, win the, the wisdom of God. Ephesians 3, 8 through 13, and the apostle writes this, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. To me, he saved me. He brought me up from the miry pit and put my feet on the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ. He lifted me out of my self-righteousness and my Phariseeism and gave me a burning passion of love for Christ and a burning desire to bring the message of that love to the people I formerly thought of as worthless, dirty subhuman. By the way, if, if the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can take that man and give him that love for the people that he disdained before, he can change our hearts to give us a burning desire to bring the gospel of peace to those that we often overlook and we think they're inconvenient 
and their too much trouble. And they come with all their baggage. We we have no place to put your baggage right now. Sorry. Keep your distance. So that brings me to the third question. What's the ultimate purpose for everything that God does? And that brings us to this last verse, verse 17, where Paul breaks out. He just breaks forth in a doxology. As he, as he has written these things, it, it just these words just tumble forth from him. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Why does God do anything? What is the ultimate reason for everything that God does? So that he might be praised and his glory put on display for all creatures uh, in the heavenly realms and on the earth. All creatures observe the glory and the majesty of the divine being and be drawn to worship him. That's why God does anything. That's, that's the ultimate big reason for everything. Which feeds into a very practical question that the uh, all those uh, stuffy old Puritan ministers that gathered back at the Westminster Assembly kind of started their first catechism question off. What is man's chief end? What's the big purpose for us? And Surprise, not surprisingly, it, it kind of goes right in with this. What? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The great reason for everything that God does is so that his creatures, whether they're angels or men, his creatures will declare his glory. and observe his majesty, and in observing, worship him. Now, I have to say that every person will glorify God. Paul lays this out in Romans 9. Those who are saved will be to the glory of his, his grace. Those who are fall under his judgment are to the glory of his justice. Everyone glorifies God. But only believers get to enjoy him. We should long to enjoy God. As much as we long to glorify him, we should also long to enjoy him. And that means being brought back to God through faith in Jesus Christ, who is our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice, being reunited with God and living under his covenant promises and, and his grace and mercy and experiencing with new eyes new minds and new hearts, the blessing of fellowship with God. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We are reconciled. That's the end result of propitiation, is reconciliation. We are reconciled to God, and as reconciled believers, we actually get to enjoy God, enjoy fellowship with God. The gospel is more than fire insurance. 
It's actually about achieving that great purpose for which we were made, to glorify and enjoy God. So what's your purpose? What's the reason for your being here today? Well, I came to church because, well, I always come to church. Good habit to get into, right? No, no. What's your reason for being here? Well, all my friends are here today. The people I like to be with, they're, they're here today, so I wanted to be here today. Oh, okay, that's, that's not bad, but it's not really why you're here. You're here because God brought you here. And you're here because he has a purpose for you being here. He had a purpose in saving you. He had a purpose in bringing you to worship this morning. He has a purpose in you being members of Sovereign Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Part of that purpose, I can tell you, part of it I don't know because he has revealed everything he's going to do with us. But ultimately, I can say this. The ultimate purpose was to, to, to glorify him and enjoy him. Second purpose is to, be, uh, to worship him. Third, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fourth, to demonstrate to the world what grace and mercy accomplish in a person's life. I mean, there are a lot of purposes. They all come together, though, under that one great purpose, that we are to glorify God. To the King of the Ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have purpose in all that you do. Those who do not understand you, those who do not believe in you, think that this universe simply exists and it goes on and it has no purpose and someday it will end. But there is no reason for anything. We are simply, as one person once said, we are simply a cosmic accident. But Lord, we know better. We know from your word that you have a reason for everything you do. We know that we are here to bring glory to your name. And we pray, Father, that you would bless us with showing us the way that we might best bring glory to your name. Increase our love for Jesus Christ, who gave himself as the propitiation for our sins. He was set forth in the world. He came into the world to save sinners. Lord, inflame our, love, our hearts with love and gratitude for Christ so that we might be that living sacrifice that by testing discerns what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord Jesus, help us to rejoice in the opportunity of bringing the gospel to many other people as well even as you save the Apostle Paul for that purpose that he might be the messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles, 
you have saved us. And part of that reason is so that we might be messengers to others as well. And Lord, implant in our hearts the great desire that by word and deed, by thought, by hope, by everything in us, every fiber of our being would be dedicated to bringing glory to your name. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen.